If you read the Bible, chances are you're searching for some kind of moral or lesson about life. And you try to figure out that lesson by following the characters and situations you find. And obviously whatever God says. Many people believe that the early Bible stories are some combination of mythology and philosophy, without taking the details seriously. But what do we see if we take the story of Genesis not as a metaphor, but as a serious description of a radically unique period in human history? In this first part, I'd like to share with you some notes I've made while studying Genesis from a non-metaphorical point of view. So turn to Genesis and let's try to figure out what life was like before the curse. One of the first things I noticed was that God created Adam before he created the Garden of Eden. He then moved Adam into the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 to 8. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. So this is before the plants and herbs even grew. And it says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So very clearly we're told that the herbs of the field were planted and ready, but they had not been watered. And it seems like there was no man yet. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the wording there deliberately sets it up so that he planted the garden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, meaning that he formed the man before the garden before he planted in there which means Adam was actually a living soul who had some sort of contact with God before he actually lived in the garden there was a life before that we don't know how long Adam spent uh, in the field or in the ground um, before he was turned into a living soul and before he was moved to the garden. But I thought that was an interesting note. Adam is transported to Eden and presumably he sees it grow into one of the most beautiful places there is. And it's his job to tend it. If we look at Genesis 2 verses 9 it says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 2, verses 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden 
to dress it, and to keep it. Now these verses suggest to me that that, he, that Adam was brought there kind of in order to maybe show what God wanted him to do. He didn't create Adam in the middle of the garden, in the perfect state, which is kind of what most people assume, I think. They assume that Adam was just uh, born or created in the middle of a, a perfect garden and that he had only experienced the perfect garden and that that was the original state of mankind. But I think this makes an interesting distinction from that. If Adam was created before that, what does that mean about his mentality? Even if Adam didn't see the plants and the garden grow in front of his own eyes, even if that had already been fully matured and, and ready for him, it says in 2 verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So this directly tells us that he was transported from where he was created into the garden. And so that's when he gets the instructions that he may freely eat out of, of everything in the garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And... Um, He's actually not forbidden to eat from the tree of life, but I guess he just doesn't choose to. I think that's also pretty interesting. This is all, this is all well before Eve arrives. So it's Adam's job to dress and keep the garden. And it doesn't specify this, but logically, I think that would mean it's his job to basically learn everything there is about horticulture and gardening. He would have to learn these sorts of skills if he was going to dress and keep the garden. And so it's possible that God personally taught him everything he needed to know about that, or he was programmed with it already as something that he needs to know. But we find out that that Adam is actually very old by the time he has his first son, or rather uh, his third son, and for that reason, the time periods that we're talking about here become interesting because it's possible that Adam was in the garden alone with God for quite a long time, possibly, you know, tens of years or, or maybe even a hundred years. He's alone and, and there's not even animals around by the sounds of it. Go to... Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20. Well, first let's go a little bit earlier, just to give it minimal context. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. 
And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to all fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the woman, and were not ashamed. Now let's, let's break this down, if we can. I find it interesting that in verse 2 verses in verse 218 the lord god said it is not good that man should be alone he will make a help meet for him so he recognizes that adam shouldn't be alone and that there should be somebody specifically made for him but instead of immediately making eve he instead or uh, making eve out of the ground like he had made uh, Adam, he specifically makes every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, which, which presumably is the pairs. He makes a male and a female of all animals. Well, not including fish and and insects, I suppose, from the from the way it's read here. Beasts of the field and fowls of the air, and so he makes all of these animals, all these pairings. And he shows them to Adam, and it's almost like he's showing Adam that he is alone and introducing the concept of a male and female pairing, and that it would be, you know, suspicious in a way that that there's all these animals that have pairings, but that Adam himself does not have anyone for himself. He doesn't have a female. And he has to give names to all of them, so he's personally recognizing them and thinking about them. And it's only after that that he puts him into a deep sleep. And then instead of making him making a woman in front of him while he's conscious and awake, he goes into a sleep and and his rib is removed, and Eve is actually the only thing that's made out of flesh. The animals and Adam are formed out of the ground. So woman is actually very unique in that sense. It's not clear from the the text why God chose to make Eve out of the rib, but if we assume that the, the effect was the reason, then the reason would be that Adam recognizes that the woman is very special, um, and that it was made specifically for him and out of him. And so, Adam senses what it's like to be alone, and then God gives him a woman. But he literally just calls her woman. She doesn't even have a proper name. And now I find this to be extremely interesting, because it means that she was just literally woman. He had a name. Adam translates roughly into uh, 
dirt or uh, reddish dirt and so the suggestion being that he looks like from his skin color and from the fact that he was made out of the ground he is reddish colored whether that's natural skin color or a dark tan or whatever we don't know but it's a reddish color and and Eve is not named Eve until quite a bit later so from Adam's perspective maybe Eve isn't even really a, a sort of person uh, he doesn't think of her on that in that way like if you think about it from Adam's point of view there's no such thing as other people really there's no there is no concept of different people there's only himself God who he's probably been talking to and probably been spending time with as he tends this garden there's animals but now there's just one other person who is specifically made out of him and for him as like his personal support or or female and in that sense the the dynamics of their relationship are especially interesting because in a sense she's not easily replaceable because you know he had to lose something in order to gain her so you wouldn't think that that he would be quick to reject her if something went wrong and as we see later on he makes a big sacrifice for her another note that I found interesting about Genesis early on with Adam and Eve is that it says that uh, the animals are basically not predators uh, there's no there's no predators at all nothing eats meat Adam doesn't eat meat either everything eats the herbs and the seeds go to Genesis 1 30 and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life I have given every green herb for meat and it was so so you see everything that was alive had to eat plants and that would mean that in the garden when when Adam named every every beast of the field and everything that was in the air that he had no reason whatsoever to be afraid of any of them I mean I mean I guess you you could say that they might still be territorial or maybe they weren't even in the garden maybe he literally just named the animals and then God put them out in the fields outside of the garden maybe the garden had a view of the surrounding fields uh, we know that it had rivers going through it there's there's interesting questions here about what the role of animals were at this time but I found it interesting that later on uh, when Noah and his family are are departing from the ark that's when God actually gives them instructions about like how to eat meat and that specifically forbidding them from eating blood and this is 
where the idea comes from that before the flood, uh, there was only vegetarianisms uh, in, in, in essence. And so Adam and Eve, they're living in this interesting garden. They're tending it. Uh, Adam is tending it. And she is basically taking care of Adam and keeping him company. And the, and the animals are pets more than they are threats. Now the question of sex in early Genesis, when it's just Adam and Eve, is interesting because what we see is that God creates the woman out of uh, Adam's rib, and then he calls her woman. He doesn't call her Eve. And then the first thing he seems to say is that she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now think about what that means, because there has literally only been Adam up to this point, and then Eve is newly created out of him. And yet Adam already seems to understand what it means for there to be a father and a mother, and a husband and a wife. And the idea of reproduction, the idea that, that the, the children will leave their parents in order to get married, and that they'll become one flesh, you know, implying sex, and and that there's sort of a, a rejoining, I guess, maybe even a becoming one flesh, sort of like how he and Eve are literally one flesh because she was made out of his rib. And so that there's a reunion aspect to, to sexuality. And so the next verse says they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. It says they were both naked, man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. So this is definitely a sexual relationship, man and his wife, not man and his sister, or man or his his you know just um, companion or anything like that. So Adam, if we look at what we have already said that that he witnessed all of the animals being created and and presented to him, male and female, presumably, he might have observed from the animals how how reproduction works. At first he was just learning how to tend the garden, he was learning horticulture, and now he has also learned the the animal kingdom essentially and named it. And so he knows that when he receives a female, he knows what that entails. But it's already with a a sort of archetypal archetypical um structure built in. So you have the question of how did he know that she was going to get pregnant and why didn't she become pregnant until later? Because Cain is her first child, or at least her first son, I guess. There could be daughters before there were sons, but the first son that she has is Cain, unless we 
she had she had sons that we don't know about, but the text doesn't suggest that. So it's interesting that they would have essentially had a sexual relationship with no shame, no no self-consciousness about being naked, and so their sexual relationship would, would therefore have a different angle to it than, than anybody else throughout the entire rest of history would have had a different idea of sexuality and nakedness than Adam and Eve before they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But already here, already at the, at the initiation point when he sees that he has a female, he says that there will, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they will be one flesh. Now chapter 2 of Genesis ends with the creation of Eve and the fact that um, Adam names her woman, doesn't name her Eve until later, after they commit sin, or rather they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they are being forced out of the Garden of Eden. For now, she's just called woman. And he has just said that there will be uh, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they will be one flesh, predicting that they will have kids. But we're not told that they have kids until later. Chapter 3 starts with the serpent and the fact that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And the serpent talks to the woman, who is just referred to as the woman here, because she's not yet been given the name Eve. And uh, the snake asks about uh, eating from the trees of the garden, and she has only heard, presumably, about not being able to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil from Adam. Adam received the instruction not to eat from that tree. Eve, according to the text, we don't see any evidence that she was told. So Adam would have been the one that told her. And, of course, this serpent uh, convinces her that it is actually okay to eat. But what I found interesting here is that after she eats, she still gives it to her husband. He eats it. Uh, they become ashamed. And I want to jump down to uh, the part where they become cursed, the, the so-called curse. Because God says to Adam that uh, because he's hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So, assuming that this is, this is literally true, Adam immediately goes from being the caretaker of this garden and, and the keeper of his wife and you know, who knows how long they're going to live. Nobody even has the concept of death yet. The, the concept of death hasn't even entered into reality yet. And 
so now he knows that, well, he's been told actually that in the day that he eats of the tree, he will die. So I guess in that sense, there is the concept of death, but they haven't seen it for themselves. They don't know how serious it is. They don't know really how it feels to lose somebody. And so maybe that's why they don't take it quite that seriously. And also remember that as far as they're concerned, there's no promise from God that humanity will multiply and continue to to fill the entire earth and that um, you know this is going to have some long-range consequences as far as they're concerned maybe you know it's just going to be basically them and they really don't think about the long-term consequences for humanity because humanity is literally just one guy and one woman at this point but anyway he tells Eve, that uh, he will multiply her sorrow. And where does he say that? Verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So that's like his, his curse of the woman. But what I find interesting, and I've never heard anyone comment on this, is that he says he will multiply her sorrow, which if you look at the actual uh, wor word that's used, it's, uh, it's a word that translates actually kind of more closely to worrisomeness. So God is, is telling her that she is going to be worried. And this is an important part that I've never heard anyone analyze. That is separately said from her conception. And if you look at the word conception, it means pregnancy. So obviously, you know, we know that people are conceived in the womb. And the Bible generally talks about conception as being... Uh, pregnancy, but I don't mean nobody's pointed out that she'll have uh, that the conception means pregnancy, but that these are two separate things. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow or worrisomeness and thy conception or pregnancy. So, what this implies to me, especially when you look at the rest of the verse, which is in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. He sets up that she's going to be worried, and she's going to start getting pregnant, and that is going to be how she brings forth children, being worried as she brings forth the children. And the reason for that could very well be tied with the previous verse, which is where she says, he, uh, God says to her, um, no, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so, what we have is a situation where already, 
Eve knows that there's that she has an enemy and that her children are going to have enemy enemies and that they're going to be these serpents the same ones that tricked her the same ones who are more subtle than anybody the same ones who were responsible in some way for them getting kicked out of paradise and having to you know work in the field so no wonder she's going to be full of worry but it does say that God will multiply her worrisomeness and her pregnancy so this could be an explanation for why they haven't had children yet and why it's only after they leave the Garden of Eden that she has a child she has Cain they might have been having sex constantly in the Garden of Eden they weren't ashamed of their nakedness until they ate of the fruit and and yet they don't seem to have any children you would think the children would be mentioned if there were any even if there were daughters even like the Old Testament tends to emphasize sons more than daughters but it doesn't seem like they've had any children so right here in verse 316 of Genesis we see God saying that he's going to increase her pregnancy and her worrisomeness I think that predicts why and explains why they haven't had any kids yet why she's going to start having just a tremendous amount of kids although even that is kind of um, is kind of questionable the choice of what the what Genesis mentions in terms of the children are very interesting to me because uh, the lifespans of everybody in these early stories are so long like like I think Adam lives 900 years so nobody's in a hurry you know it's a, it's such a different way of thinking you have to think about if you're thinking about these people who have no there's no such thing as a stranger there's no such thing as a, as a person out somewhere else that you might meet you are the only people and so you have to think about it very differently and I'm going to be getting into that but for now the interesting thing is that they seem to not have any children yet and God says he's going to increase her conception or her her fertility her pregnancy her ability to have kids that's part of the the curse that she has so let's just take a moment to think about the world before such a thing as society because what we have here is Adam and Eve a garden that they're now kicked out of and land with with plants and herbs in the fields beasts in the fields and yet everything seems to just be eating herbs they're not yet predators not yet meat eaters but they are in the same domain as these animals and so there's in a world like this there are no laws no laws saying what's forbidden God has not yet given them instructions he's told them the only thing he's told them not to do is eat of that one tree and that's the one thing that they they did do they, they broke that law and now they're being kicked out there are no traditions 
no systems for how to operate or behave. Can you imagine that? There's no strangers. There's no distant person you're going to meet along your travels. No, no cities or nations or histories out there. There's nothing out there. There's just terrain and and beasts and fowls and and fish and whatever is natural out there. But everything that exists in the whole world, except for the Garden of Eden, is just territory that is unexplored. And there's no doubts or confusion about history either, therefore. I mean, there's there's so much that we don't know today. When you when you just get born and you get through whatever education you manage to get and understand and and even that education, how good is it really? And then these people have well there's a there's a small part of history that Eve doesn't know about because Adam was around before her, saw some things that she didn't see, was told some things that she didn't hear. But really, they are in the origin point of history, so they don't have any confusion or misconceptions about what has happened thus far. They also don't have any difference in their concept between personal family and the human race. So they have, there's only family, is the only thing that exists. And the question of incest, obviously, is there. It's right there. The only, you have a branching path. Reproduction is going to happen with, between the siblings here. Adam and Eve's children are going to have uh, sex with each other and have children with each other. And so there's an interesting question about the fact that there was no law, so there's no such thing as incest being forbidden. Uh, there's no such thing as eating meat. There's no such thing as, as traditions or laws or systems or anything. This is just humanity in a sort of state of just being a family. That's all that it is. A, a messed up family that got kicked out of the Garden of Eden and... We really don't know how many daughters Adam had because it mentions Cain and it mentions Abel and it mentions Seth, but it really doesn't talk about anybody else. So there's, there's different rules, different perceptions. When they're cut off from Eden, it's also important to think about the fact that it doesn't say that they were cut off from God. A lot of people think of the the fall. They talk about the fall from God, the fall from grace, the knowing good and evil that they're separated from God now. Well, that is the origin point of of sin, knowing good and evil. But it does not say that they are removed from God. Only in Genesis 6 verses 3 does it hint at that, in my opinion? And we'll be getting to that. In Genesis 6, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, 
for that he is also flesh, and yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, what does it mean, my spirit shall not always strive with man? Most people only know about the word striving, meaning conflict, uh, striving against somebody, striving, well, maybe striving towards something. So we know about striving against, and we know striving for, or striving against and and striving toward, but we don't really ever hear anyone talking about striving with. And God says he shall not always strive with man. Well, if you look up what the actual word is, it means to rule. So the English word strive is not exactly accurate. The the Hebrew word is different, and it means to rule, to judge, to strive, like you're striving at law, you're you're trying, you're putting in a lot of effort. You're uh, another, some more synonyms for this word. Contend, execute, judge, minister, judgment, plead. So what does that imply? If he's judging man, he's not just judging them as, you know, condemning. He's ruling them. This is, this is, the implication that until this point, until chapters later, that until that point, God has been ruling mankind. They were, they were kicked out of the garden. Yeah, sure, they were kicked out of the garden. But God was still with them. Even though they were kicked out, and the prophecy was made about enmity between the serpent and Eve's children, it seems to me that God was actually ruling Adam and Eve and those early people. And so that changes the way you think about these early people. I mean, when he was kicking them out of the garden, he made them coats of skins and clothed them. It says that in, Je in Genesis chapter 3, verses 21. He says, Behold, man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from, from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. I find that to be interesting. He's sent from, when he was, from whence he was taken. Now, that again implies he was not, or it's, it says he was not created in the garden because it means he was, he has to go back to the place where he was created. Symbolically, I, I would think that this means, and is sending a message to Adam, that you have to, you, you've lost your privileges. You've lost this nice garden I made for you. He was made outside of the garden, out of the ground. Adam knew that. He woke up. He saw, he got the breath of life breathed into him. He looks around him. He sees the garden. God takes him there and plants him in it. So he knows that his default state is outside of the garden. God then decides to to give him this gift of this beautiful garden, let him tend it, let him learn everything about it, let him name all the animals, have all this, this status and privilege. Now he's being sent back 
to when he where he was taken from. And if you pay attention to where it initially said that Adam was created, let's go back to there. Where is that? Because there's actually a direction. So it says in verse two verses uh, in Genesis two verses fifteen, it says the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. But earlier, go to uh, Genesis two verses six, seven, and eight. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and put the so again, in, in verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so we know that the garden was created eastward, from where Adam was created. Adam, if he is going to get ejected from the garden and get sent back to the actual spot where he was taken and where he was made out of, he would have to go west, wouldn't he? So, this is interesting because when they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, it's not that they were totally cut off from God. In fact, later on, we have very good evidence that he was actually ruling over them and their children at first. But when it says in uh, the next chapter, in, in chapter 3, it says, Therefore God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So we might assume that that means he's going west back to where he was originally formed sort of a symbolic return except now the ground will be cursed which it wasn't initially and he's going to have sorrow he's going to eat from the sweat of his brow and this kind of stuff but then it says so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Isn't it interesting, if he had been sent west to where he came from, for some reason the cherubims and presumably the flaming sword were placed on the east. So they're even further east, they're on the opposite side of the garden than Adam. Now this is going to come into play later on when we look at the story of Cain, which is immediately what follows. Adam knew his wife, she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So, this We've already explained that this is because the Lord has multiplied her conception or her fertility or her pregnancy. And she, again, bare his brother Abel. 
and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now, that gets into, obviously, the conflict with Cain and Abel. But even here, let's look at this. Why were they keeping sheep? Well, it doesn't suggest that they were eating animals at this time. There's Later on, God gives no instructions on what they can and can't eat. It's possible that they were. It's possible that, that they were using the, the literal fat of these uh, animals for things, killing them and, and using their fat. But there's actually a reason to believe that fat does not even mean actual literal fat. The Hebrew words, uh, min, mini, mene, uh, also keleb, it means... I'll just read you what it says here. From or out of, in many senses, above, after, among, because of, etc. The other me word meaning richest or choicest part. So it could just mean the best sheep. Now in Genesis chapter 4, we're looking at Cain and Abel. And it's interesting that uh, they were keeping sheep because obviously sheep are useful for wool. And if they recognized this, they might have just been keeping sheep for the sake of wool, not actually eating them. There's, a, there's this imagery that has gone on through tradition that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord on an altar, and they burnt the offering, and that the smoke rose up to God and pleased God, because that is what happens later on. But, but actually just read, well, we have read what it actually says. It says nothing here about an altar. It says nothing here about burning them. And so let's think of it just from a clean slate perspective about what this is actually saying. Once we combine it with what we've already established that, that God was ruling over these people, it means that there's Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, they are literally the only people that we know of, although there might have been daughters that aren't mentioned. And now they're keeping sheep and tilling the ground, and they're so they're they're making a living together as a family. And they haven't yet cleaved unto their wives, they haven't yet left their father and mother. That's what, what Adam said is that once you you get a wife, that's when you leave the father and mother. And so here we have these single sons. They might have even been pretty young. We don't know. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, this is a radical idea that I haven't heard before, but it makes perfect sense to me. That because they were not cut off from God, and that at this point, God has not hidden himself 
from mankind, that this could literally have been Cain taking his his vegetables or fruit or plants, whatever he was growing, literally walked over to God, who was walking among them, living among them, ruling them like a father figure or a grandfather figure, and said, would you like some of this? I would like to offer this to you. They have to eat. The Lord presumably does not have to eat, but out of the kindness of his heart, he decides to go and give to the Lord. Maybe he wanted some sort of special privilege. Maybe he he did have some sort of evil intent behind it, that he wanted to become greater and, and uh, more recognized and privileged. But all it says is that he was... He decided to give the offering. It doesn't say that the Lord demanded an offering. This is before the law. This is before God is telling people to make sacrifices to him. And then it, it just so happens, Abel probably sees this, and what does he do? He, he wants to also bring something to God, maybe so that he doesn't get left behind. Maybe so that, you know, he thinks that maybe uh, Cain's offering will cause him to be favored. And so he decides to go, and not only does he take the firstlings of his flock, but it says the fat thereof, and as we know, the, the fat does not necessarily mean literal fat, so we're not talking about burning and, and cutting away the meat and, and offering the fat literally. It can actually mean, in, in all this old English and in the Hebrew, it actually seems pretty clear that it's it's just the best part. So, and of the fat thereof, well, it sounds like it's multiple from his flock, doesn't it? He also he brought the firstlings, plural, of his flock, and of the fat thereof. So, the best part thereof. That could even mean the wool. He just took the best of the first stuff that he had and brought it to the Lord. And I'm imagining this now as being literally walking up to him. Because he's he's striving with mankind at this point. It's not yet at the point where he says, I'm not always going to strive with man. If you jump down, Cain obviously goes, his countenance falls, he he goes and slays Abel. Then listen to what he says. What he says afterwards reveals something about the placement of these Garden of Eden and, and those cherubims. So God is talking to Cain. And he's killed Abel. And he says, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, and remember that indeed Cain is the one who was the tiller of the ground, it says, It shall henceforth yield unto, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, Whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord God set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. 
and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And remember that on the east of Eden is where God has already placed the cherubim and the flaming sword. So this is interesting. It implies that Cain, Abel, Adam, and Eve were all living together on the west side of the Garden of Eden, and that Cain is now sent out to the east side of the Garden of Eden. So he goes around the Garden of Eden and is therefore not even visible from them. He's moving to a different land. He's a vagabond. He's, he's specifically leaving the face of God, which implies that he was not separated from the face of God before. This is a very different time of human history. You can't even compare it with Moses. You can't compare it even with Noah. This is really early stuff when it's just a small family. is all that exists in the whole world. So he goes into the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And, Enoch, and he built, builded a city, and he called the city the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So it means that Cain went, he's no longer able to really till the ground the way he did, because it says that the ground isn't going to yield strength to him. And so he builds a city. Isn't that interesting? The first city ever built is named after his son Enoch. And would this be possibly a, a fearful construction of a city? you know, walls and roofs and, and these things that, that protect you from strangers who might want to kill you. That's what he said, is people will want to kill him. God put a mark on him, but he's still worried about it because he's not being ruled by God anymore. Cain is the first person, him and his wife and his family are the first people to live outside of the presence of the Lord. It says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden, implying that he was in the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land with the Lord on the west of Eden. And so now he's, and the fact that he has a wife and, and she conceives means that Adam and Eve must have had daughters that we never heard about. So that's interesting because who knows, there could have been dozens of daughters, but we're, t we're following the stories of the men here. And so, you follow the list of children, and, and it says that, you know, one of them was uh, the father of such as dwell in tents, and, and of such as have cattle. Uh, another one was skilled with the harp and the organ. Another one was uh, an artificer of brass and iron. So they're having these specializations and a city format. And that's kind of contrasted to the godly rule of those who are still with Adam and Eve. So once Cain leaves Adam and Eve and the presence of the Lord and goes to the east of Eden to build a city, 
Adam and Eve are alone again. Their one son was killed by the other, and then that son was exiled and sent away. So now they're alone again, unless they have daughters, which it seems like they do because Cain managed to have a wife when he left. And it says in verse, in chapter 4, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, she said, had appointed, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now this is all a little bit interesting. The name Seth literally means substitute. If you look at the Hebrew definition of Seth. So this, this implies, of course, again, that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were actually, you know, a, a tight-knit family. They were living together. They, they saw each other. They knew each other. They were on, on some sort of good terms together. One taking care of sheep, one tilling the field. Both of them go and, and bring offerings to God around the same time, so they probably lived close to each other. The implication I get from this is that is that they were actually just a small family living together. And it's only once Cain leaves that we have any mention of him taking a wife. And remember that Adam said that when a man takes a wife, he leaves his father and mother. And that's exactly what he did. He left his father and mother and left uh, with his wife. And so it implies that they didn't have any children before that. Abel didn't have any children. And now, as a replacement, as a substitute for Abel, she has Seth and calls him a substitute. So this seems pretty special. It implies that she hasn't been having a lot of sons. And I find it very interesting that it says that once Seth has a son, he called his name Enos, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Because what does that mean? Before that, they weren't calling on the name of the Lord? Seth's child, if you, count, if you don't count Cain, who left to a different land and is cut off from everybody else, nobody even knows what's happening with him, in their own city, their own not city, their their own open land dwelling, whatever they were living in, Seth's child is the first grandchild of Adam and Eve that they're aware of. And to them, even the concept that their children could have children is possibly a new concept. Adam said that when a man takes a wife and leaves, that they will become one flesh, but they didn't technically say that, or show any evidence that they predicted generation following generation in this, in this multiplication effect. But in any case, that is when men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And this, this to me would imply that they were worried about being separated from God because 
by my reading, they're literally living in the presence of God such that they can just go up to him and make offers and say, would you like this? Would you like stuff from the ground? Would you like these sheep? And so people start to call on him. It's, it implies a, a little bit of worry that things are going to get spread out a little bit too much and people are going to start to lose touch with God who is literally ruling them as a theocracy in this sort of state of constant uh, judgment or education, possibly. And it says in, in chapter 5, verses 1, what happens with Adam's generations and some of these generations that follow. Genesis chapter 5 does a little bit of recap, and then it tells us about, about the generations starting with Adam. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. So I, already I want to stop and point out that I believe there is a literal likeness, an actual visual similarity between Adam and God, to the point where it may even look like they are related. It may look like it is like a father-son creation, if not even closer than father and son in creation. Adam is, if you look at the, the definition of the name Adam in Hebrew, um, you know, it's, it's derived from words that mean basically reddish or ruddy. It can also mean human being and mankind. This is how the Hebrew language works. But there's an implication that he's got reddish, ruddy skin. He looks literally like God which implies that people were seeing God. God walked in the garden with, with Adam and Eve and called out to them. He played dumb, you see. In the pre-flood uh, conditions, God is walking around mankind and ruling them. And so... They can look at him. They can see that he looks similar to Adam. It's, it's also interesting that possibly, you know, Adam's children do not look like him and do not look like God, therefore. Because it says, the next verse, verse 2, Male and female created he them. He blessed them and called their name Adam in the day that they were created. Now, obviously, they were not created in the same exact day. It doesn't doesn't seem to me that he did, but could mean a literal day, but it's probably more like, you know, a day used in the Jewish traditional sense here, that a day is, a, is an era of time, or a period of time, but maybe it is the same day. That would be a lot to pack into one day, that's for sure. But it says, And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and called him Seth. So you see, it does not tell you how old he was when he created, or when he had Cain and Abel. It only tells you how old he was when he had Seth, and that's when he was 130 years old. A lot of time has passed between his creation in from the dust of the ground to the point where Cain and Abel, or Cain killed Abel and left, and then they had Seth. How much time was there before 
Eve was created? How much time was there before um, they, they were cast out of the garden? How much time was there between Cain and Abel and Seth? We don't know the time periods before this, but we do know that he was 130 years old when he had Seth, his third son. And it's interesting to me that it specifically says, begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Because Adam was created directly in God's image. And we have reason to believe that they were actually like, I don't think it would be this specific if it didn't mean literally visually similar. People were looking with their own eyes at God and God was ruling them. So he's created in his likeness after his image, that's Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now is it not absolutely mind-boggling to think of the fact that Adam lived 930 years. Well, that's what it says. And so, there's reason to believe that nobody in this period of time, well, let's keep reading just to reinforce this. The next verse, And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. So he lives 105 years before he has his son. These people are not in a hurry. Genesis 5-7 and Seth lived after he begot Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat, begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begot Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years. You see, these people are living to be 900 years old, almost a 1,000 years old. This is absolutely a different way of thinking. And if it's true that they were basically living in a theocracy where they were directly being ruled by God, and if it's true, like it says in, in chapter 4, verses 26, that after Seth had Enos, that then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, you can kind of see why. Because you have a society forming a family, an extended family, that is growing, but every time somebody has a wife, they're supposed to leave their father and mother and go, you know, live somewhere else, stop, stop being taken care of by the father and mother. And so if these people are having potentially dozens or hundreds of kids, I mean, they, they only start when they're 100 years old in, in, in these cases most of the time. Uh, Seth lived 105 years before he begot Enos, so he took his sweet time. But in that time, we don't know how much he learned directly from God or from Adam and Eve. I mean, there would have been 805 years between Cain leaving, Seth being born, and Seth finally saying, I'm going to 
leave my father and mother and have my own child with my own wife. And so that's when he leaves Adam and Eve and and decides to start his own family. And that's when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So I what I imagine is that is that as God is is ruling them, because it says he strived with mankind, which if you look at the Hebrew word means ruling over them. These people are physically, geographically separating themselves somewhat. We don't know how much from from the rest, but if they want to talk to God, it's like they actually have to go and literally call out to him and try to find him and try to ask him things so that they can find out how they're supposed to live. They're, they're supposed to have guidance directly from God because there is no law. There is no tradition. There's no system in place. And so they're worried because everybody at this point loves God and they don't know about, you know, they don't even really know about sin properly. They just know about Cain being, you know, exiled because he killed somebody. And surely the stories were passed on and these lessons were taught, but it's a different kind of world before any formal law is put in place. So it follows all of these people who have who have their kids and these families. And uh, we get up to Enoch. And Enoch um, is, is a different Enoch than uh, the one that Cain had, I believe. And, yeah, it must be. And uh, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, traditionally, this is explained as being that he walked with God in the sense that he was holy. God, it would be a spirit that you would never see and that you would pray to, like we pray now. People might make sacrifices and and God would be a very mysterious, mystified entity up in heaven and that, you know, walking with God meant being a holy person who follows the law and such. But this is before the law. I think it means he literally walked around with God. He wanted to be in God's company and decided to spend time with him. And so God took him and, and sent him basically to heaven. I also want to talk a little bit about how Adam and Eve might be perceived in this time period because we're talking about a family, not humanity, not distant nations and, and strange peoples. Everybody here on the, on the west side of Eden, not the, the, the east side, which is Nod, where Cain lived, where he was exiled to, everybody else here seems to probably be uh, at least it's not mentioned that they they totally separated themselves from God and from Adam and Eve. And so you have this sort of branching family that's spreading out and taking over more land. But Adam and Eve are still there. Adam lives till he's 930 years old, I believe. And so they're still available. And people would still have perceptions about them. People would still would still be able to ask them questions about what the the origin of mankind was, what what life was like in the garden, what what the serpent was like, and 
and lessons that, you know, there's so few stories that exist. But the story that everybody would want to know is what, was, what is with Adam and Eve? What happened there? What happened with the serpent? And already the prophecy has been made that the serpent's seed will bruise the heel of Eve's seed. And if you take it, you know, symbolically like they may have even taken it, I imagine things were were rather superstitious in that time period. Um, they know that there's somebody special who's going to come and basically defeat the serpent. And, and, you know, they know that Adam is created directly in God's likeness with a physical resemblance. They know that Seth was physically resembled and, and looked very close to Adam. So you have this likeness chain. They know that Adam personally named pretty much every creature that they would ever see. He gave them a name, and, and these names may have had some sort of significance to them, but, but it's very interesting that you'd be living in a world where you know the guy who named everything. They know that Adam and Eve are responsible for everyone being cut off from paradise and from this, this now legendary, now mythical tree of life that would allow them. God, I think it's very interesting that God actually tells, says out loud that if they ate from the tree of life, they would be like God's because they know they're already kind of like God because they know good and evil. But, you know, and he had to kick them out of the garden specifically to prevent them from reaching the tree of life. And they were never forbidden from eating the tree, from, the, from eating of the tree of life. They just happened to not have done it. And so I guess they didn't realize that they could die. And didn't take it seriously back in the garden. And so there's sort of this, I imagine, a, a resentment towards Adam and Eve, but more so towards the serpent that they fear. And this already these feelings of uh, being cut off from paradise and inconvenienced because, you know, life is so hard, they have to till the field. And, and indeed, once we go through these generations, and we get closer to Noah, it says, and Lamech lived after he begat Noah uh, 900, or sorry, 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. But it says, he called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and our toils of our hand because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. So Noah was specifically named Noah. If you look up the, the definition of the name Noah, um, let's see if we can, we can get any insight into that. Uh, it means quiet and rest. Basically, it derives from that root. And so people are miserable that they have to work this ground, but the Lord is still around and they can still contact. Let's think about how God was perceived by people before the flood, before Noah. Because we have Cain leaving, he's exiled. He's supposed to go 
to Nod, the land of Nod, and he builds a city there, and he's, he's deliberately cut off from the face of God, from the presence of God. But Adam and Eve and Seth and all their offspring seem to be living in the same area, and God seems to be striving with them, which, which we know translates into ruling over them and giving them guidance and judgments. So, in that time, God is an approachable being who resembles Adam, or rather, Adam resembles him. He seems human-like. It's very interesting that God does not make himself mysterious at this point. Uh, we're told that Enoch walked with him, and, and as far as I'm concerned, that could literally mean walking around and following him. God is just a special person to them who uh, they call, if they do call him Lord, the, the traditional uh, meaning of Lord, of course they wouldn't have been using English, but, you know, Lord actually means, means the ruler. And so, you know, uh, the name is, is Jehovah, but they may have just looked at him as being a special ruler over mankind as, as it existed thus far, not even over all mankind, because Cain is literally just got kicked out. So there's a part of mankind that is not ruled by God, and they're ruling themselves. They're they're taking after their own, uh, taking care of themselves. He handcrafted Adam, and he handcrafted Eve, one from the dirt and one from a rib. He instructed them personally. He clothed them personally, and he punished them personally. This is not a distant and removed concept. It wouldn't be like us struggling to understand what God wants or or to understand what we need to do to please him. He, God is literally, basically, to put it rudely, he'd be like a guy that you could just talk to. And and like I said, he, he he'd acts deliberately less intelligent than he actually is. Um, in Genesis 3, verses 8, I mean, uh, 3, verse 8, go there and see, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman who gave to me, uh, sorry, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, of the, and I did eat. So, this is God playing dumb. We know that God is the omnipresent, omniscient creator of the whole universe. He speaks and the universe comes into being. And yet here, he's acting so human. He's walking. It doesn't say he was floating. It doesn't say he was present or his light shone down or he was a smoke cloud that, that appeared. These things are specified. How God appears to people is often specified very carefully. So here, he is literally walking. And there's no reason to doubt that he was, as a person, walking around. 
and talking to them, asking where they are, and pretending not to know why they were naked or why they were ashamed and, and you know, whether they had eaten of the tree or not. And so the perception of God is so different. The people, I mean, Cain, Cain also talked to God as if he was a fool and said, you know, uh, how should I know where my brother is? Am I my brother's keeper? You know, they have no concept of the fact that, that God knows everything. And so this is a very different kind of God than what would come later on.